Hey all, welcome back to another episode of Crime and Cynicism. I'm your host, Alana, and before we get into part three today of the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, there was some breaking news yesterday in the Gabby Petito case. So what's happening with that is the uh, coroner report came out yesterday, and in it, he said what the cause of death was for her, and they ruled it as a manual strangulation. So that's news. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of maybe guessed that that would be likely to be her demise kind of thing because uh, they were not known to travel with any sort of weapons or anything like that. So that was her cause of death. Uh, there were some rumors floating around, uh, many, in fact, about her being possibly pregnant and that kind of being uh, why ultimately her life ended. But they said very clearly and adamantly that no, she was not pregnant at the time of her death. So that you can put that to rest now. That is a, a rumor and a very false one at that. Uh, other than that, um, in the coroner's report, they put her death at three to four weeks um, before her body was found. So I believe that was on September 19th they found her, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so that would put her death somewhere between, I believe it would be, sorry, I'm using my brain here to try and think back, August 22nd to the 29th, perhaps, um, but roughly in that time frame somewhere in there. And that lines up pretty accurately with um, how it was described, like uh, with witnesses and things of when she was last seen, her phone calls with her parents, so when they last actually spoke to her uh, would line up within that that time frame. Um, I believe the 27th was the last time she was seen at the, uh, it's the Tex-Mex restaurant. I forget, it's something about piglets in the name, the restaurant uh, name. But she was seen there with Brian arguing on the 27th. So it falls right in line there. Unfortunately, it was probably within that time frame. Um, and obviously she was outdoors, so they can't pinpoint, they can't pinpoint an exact date kind of thing. Uh, it's kind of got to be arranged just because of when a body is outside for that long, like it's pretty much a month, essentially, uh, you're going to have some decomposition and things to deal with, uh, possibly animals. I mean, she was outside. So I'm sure that's why they can't give you, uh, this is the date it happened kind of thing. So that was the news, big, big breaking news yesterday. Um, with that too, I saw this morning, uh, and I know this is going to sound absolutely um, terrible to say, but so Brian Enton had posted this morning about uh, Brian Laundrie's parents leaving to go get gas to mow their lawn, which, you know, whenever he comes or goes, which they don't do very often, there's always news cameras outside of his house filming absolutely everything they're doing. Now, he began mowing his lawn this morning as I record this. And um, yeah, I, I just felt so bad for the guy. I could see cameras just line up. Was he just trying to like mow his lawn? And I know, you know, like he's not the greatest guy in the sense of what they they had done with you know, not speaking to Gabby's parents, not speaking to anybody about her or, you know, when they reported Brian missing. I do not agree with any of that, but I do feel a little bit bad that, you know, he can't even mow his lawn without cameras, like, right next to him. Like, he's, you know, because he's got to get the edge of the property. And I'm just like, wow, that's terrible. So, I mean, his whole life's under a microscope and there's no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about why that's happening, but I, you know, you do, I have human emotions, and I do feel a little bit guilty that, or a little bit bad, I guess guilty is not the correct word, because, you know, that might be Brian Laundry. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, other than that, I don't think there's been much, uh, true crime news, per se, that's coming out, so I guess I'll get into part three, because, I mean, this is probably going to be pretty long. So I went over my notes and I took a look at, you know, the timeline and just how many, like, events there are to get through. So unfortunately, 
I am going to have to split up the, the ear crimes as well. I'm going to get most of them in in this one, so that's going to be hard. But since there are 50 plus rapes to get through, I'm going to do my best to be as brief as possible, citing the important events, the dates they occurred, and any relevant information. Um, I think that there's been a pretty clear and concise pattern established and his general like modus operandi and uh, just how absolutely vile the attacks are and how brazen he is um, and how he continued on getting more and more brazen as there was a general progression of his violence over time as well. Um, but you know, brevity is not my strong suit, so I will do my best to be as brief as possible. So, uh, but I do want to give each victim a bit of acknowledgement and time because I feel like it's important, as I said, to get their stories out there and help people understand, you know, what a fucking dirtbag Joseph D'Angelo was and just what he subjected them to. So I do feel like I'm going to be brief, but I'm also going to include the information that you're needed to hear what a fucking shitbag this man was. So, um, yeah, let's move forward through 1977. So if you remember from last episode, and again, if you haven't listened to part one or part two, you should. They're important because they come before and it kind of gives you that foundation to work off of. Um, so if you remember from last episode, I did cover the first attack that occurred in 1977. So this first one in January. Um, and that would be, let me see, it was January 19th when that would happen. The very first one of 1977. So I'm going to work through the rest of them in 1977. As I said, being as brief but thorough as possible. I mean, that doesn't quite gel, but you know what I mean. So anyways, the second attack in 1977 would come only five days after the first. So the victim was home alone in her Citrus Heights home. D'Angelo broke in and went through all his usual motions, uh, threatening her, binding her, blindfolding her, ransacking her home in between attacks and threats. He used her name several times, which later led the authorities to believe that he had broken in before and had stalked her as well. He raped her and all in all spent about an hour and a half in her home. Between attacks, investigators found that he drank two beers and that he had left them behind in the kitchen after leaving. He also helped himself to some of her food as well. Although he did rape her, she felt as if he was more interested in terrorizing her, spending much more time threatening her than actually you know, raping her, committing those attacks. A scent dog was brought in, which led them to a street two blocks away, which police speculated was where his car was parked, uh, and thus that's why the, the scent was lost, because you get into the car, drive away. In this case, phone lines were not cut, although not typical of his style. This wasn't the first time that that had happened, and her description was the same. She noted that he had a small penis as well, but also described it as narrow, almost like a, like a pencil, I guess. Although he hadn't attacked this particular neighborhood before, it had many similar features to his M.O., and the victim's house was the same as all previous styles, so that single-story bungalow. His next attack would be almost two weeks later, on February 7th, 1977. The victim's husband got up for work and was on his way out of the door at 6.45 a.m., leaving their home in the Carmichael area. Her husband, George, had noticed a strange van that was parked, and called back to his wife to let her know that he'd saw it. It worried him because just a month before they had actually been robbed, so he was a little bit um, concerned that uh, this may be the robbers again coming back, and he just wanted to keep her in the loop, essentially. After he left, the victim got up and locked all the doors and windows and began her day in the kitchen. And moments later, she had just an eerie feeling of being watched, when she turned around, there was a masked man in her kitchen pointing a gun at her. He said all the same things that he uh, said before, that he was going to kill her, he just wants money, etc., all that kind of stuff. He pushed her down the hall to the bedroom, and as she passed her seven-year-old daughter's bedroom, she noted that the door was shut. 
but it had been open earlier, which led her to believe that the intruder actually shut the door as she slept, so made his way into the house very quietly and was able to actually shut a door without her noticing as well. That was very creepy. D'Angelo demanded her on the bed and began tying her up. When he told her that he wanted her to cover her face, she yelled out no and told him to get the fuck out of here, which, can you go? <laughs> You're a badass for doing that, because if someone comes in your house, they're probably terrible people, because to be able to take that risk of actually entering a home and not knowing about anything that's going to be inside, well, mind you, I guess D'Angelo probably did know, considering that he stalked his victims for so long, and likely entered their homes before, so maybe it's not as brazen in a sense, but yeah, I would not be messing around with a, an intruder in my home <laughs> telling them to fuck, get the fuck out of here, because that's, I mean, that's amazing. Good for her. So she had already been defiant back in the kitchen at this point, and D'Angelo grew really angry. He pinned her to the bed with his hand over her mouth and punched her in the head. She struggled and was able to get her hands untied. She reached for the gun in his jacket pocket, and as she tried to pull the trigger, he continued to punch her over and over again, like, just nonstop. He threatened to kill her and her daughter, telling her that he would actually cut off her daughter's ear and bring it to her as some sort of sick, twisted proof of his seriousness. She finally conceded and gave up and was blindfolded, gagged, and bound. And as she laid there, it seemed quiet for a while, and she began to work at removing her bindings, but suddenly, hands pushed her back down and threatened to cut off her toes, one for each time that she moved. He then removed her jeans and sexually assaulted and began to rape her, but suddenly just stopped. Her daughter had awoken and was standing in the hallway. He shouted at the little girl, Go in the bathroom. I'm going to tie you up. The terrified seven-year-old screamed and shouted, He's going to kill us. He got off the girl's mother, picked her up, and he threw her next to her mother on the bed. Then he retied the victim's ankles and quietly left. It was silent for a while. The only noise in the house was the seven-year-old sobbing next to her mom. There were several witnesses, one neighbor who saw a man just the day before. He wasn't wearing a mask, so she was able to see him well and described him the same as all the others, that he had short blonde hair. She felt creeped out by him, as every time she looked at him, he would look away. The morning of the attack, another witness saw a similar man run through the park area nearby at 7.30, so it was estimated he was just leaving the attack, as it only lasted about a half an hour, as well as many other witnesses saw a man in the neighborhood within weeks leading up to the attack. And all of those descriptions matched the previous victims and this victims in the approximate weight and height. A cigarette of a different brand was found to have been smoked and left in their ashtray. This attack happened not far from where his fourth victim's home was. The police believed that he'd actually already been in the home before her husband left for work. If indeed all the doors had been locked and he had time to actually shut the daughter's bedroom door. Clearly, he had stalked the victims because he knew the husband's work schedule. There had already been the break-in, and the victim received a signature hang-up phone calls. So since there was a struggle in the bedroom, they found blood. And when they tested it, they found that there was both type B, which was the victim's blood type, and type A, which would have been the same type found previously on the band-aid in the backyard of one of the victims in 76. Stab marks were found in the mattress, right next to where the victim's head would have been. When a rape kit was conducted, it matched the previous victims, and it was found the ear was a non-secretor, which in layman's terms means that he was among only about 20% of the population who do not secrete identifying substance to prove his blood type. So, with the blood found here, and on the band-aid being type A positive, Detective Richard Shelby, who was working the case, had felt fairly positive that this was the ear's blood type. It would be far too coincidental that uh, at two separate crimes where the DNA uh, matched from the rape kits, that uh, the blood type was the same. It would be a strange circumstance where it wouldn't have been the ear's blood type. So 
he would have been a type A, only identified from blood, not from semen. So this brings us to February 16th, and at about 10.30 p.m., Rodney Miller was welding his truck in his driveway. Deciding it was getting too dark, he walked into his home, which he shared with his father, and that's when they both heard a loud noise coming from the backyard. The noise was a 55-gallon drum that his father had actually turned into a smoker that had fallen over and began to roll. His father, Ray, got up and turned on the back light and saw a man in the dark corner of their backyard, and when they spotted him, he took off and made his way towards the front along the side of their house. So Rodney immediately started to chase him, with Ray following. In one leap bound, the agile assailant jumped over the neighbor's fence, which, that's a big feat. Um, But Rodney, he didn't give up. He hopped over the fence in pursuit. As he chased him out towards the court, the lurker turned around and held his arms straight out in front at his sides. And that's when Rodney got a good look at him under the street lamps. He turned and fled between two houses. So Rodney followed, eventually catching up to him and grabbing onto his ankle as he was leaping over another fence. This made the lurker stumble and fall straight down off the fence. It was dark in the yard and Rodney could only hear some clicking noises and then the distinctive sound of a gun cock. Then there was a loud burst, a kablam, as he described it, with a bright bolt of light shooting out. And Rodney fell back. He shouted, I've been shot. His father was right behind him, and that's when the assailant shot at him another time. Ray dragged his son out of any further bullet paths and around to the front of the neighbor's garage. At this point, the neighbors had heard the commotion and the police were called. When Rodney was transported to the hospital, he was found to have 13 holes in him. Because of the type of the bullet that the perpetrator used, it had exploded on impact and ripped through his internal organs. But Rodney did recover. Yeah, Rodney. And he would go on to help the investigation and had a composite sketch drawn up. Rodney says that to this day, the smell of gunpowder still gives him a stomach ache, which of course it does, Rodney. What a hero, too. Chasing this this guy. Ah, that's awesome. Rodney's the man. All right, so one month later, on Tuesday, March 8th, the ear would strike again. And I'm sure he was reeling from his last two blunders. His next victim would be awoken at 3 a.m., approximately, to a knife on her neck. He went through all the usual motions once more, threatening her over and over, tying her up, blindfolding her, gagging her. He raped her several times, burglarized the home while taking nothing of value. He would eat her food, relax on the backyard patio in between sexual assaults and ransackings. Once it became quiet, she was able to remove the gag and scream for help. A neighbor eventually heard her and was able to call the police. Upon investigation, she too would report the hang-up phone calls prior to the attack for about several weeks before. She had also reported a prowler in her yard. It seemed as if the ear also knew that she was separated and that her son was away at a sleepover that night. Witnesses who saw a man in the area recently gave similar descriptions. The victim couldn't give a description because she never actually saw him. The house was the same style as all the others, but this victim would be the oldest, being 37 years old at the time, which is not old, but, I mean, he did like teenagers and things of that nature, so yes, she was the oldest at 37. She, too, believed him to be more interested in terrorizing her than the rape itself. So really ramping up here, we've got 10 days after this, so 10 days later, He would go on to attack a 16-year-old who had just gotten off her shift at KFC. She arrived back at her home at about 10.45 p.m. Her plan was to grab a few things and change and head to a friend's house to stay there because her parents were gone for the weekend. When she got to the house, she noticed that the porch light had been turned off, what typically it would have been left on, but she assumed that her parents just turned it off before leaving for the weekend sometime in the afternoon. She came into the house and she set her chicken dinner that she had grabbed from her work on her way out and she put it down on the counter, flicked on the light. She picked up the phone that was sitting on the counter as well and before she could dial, she heard a loud noise and turned around to look behind her and terrifyingly, a man in a mask was behind her with a axe raised up over his head as if he was going to bring it down on her. Which, 
mean, I probably would have peed myself at this point. He growled, Don't scream or I'll kill you. As she stood still frightened, he pulled the phone cord out of the wall and snatched the receiver from her hand. He then ordered her down and tightly bound her wrists and ankles. He left and then ransacked the home. As he went about the home, he went outside as well for a little bit, and then the phone in the master bedroom began to ring. As it rang, he stood silently over top of the victim. He threatened to kill her. He then cut up towels, gagged, blindfolded her, and while blindfolded, he terrorized her a few times using scissors, the axe, and a knife. Then the phone would ring out again. The victim would later say that she heard the phone ring about 30 times. Clearly shaken, he removed the gag and asked her when her parents were coming home. Unfortunately for her, she told him the truth, that they were gone for the long weekend in Tahoe and her sister was also away. At this point, she begged him not to hurt her, and he began to untie her ankles and undress her, making crude remarks as he did, even using her name several times as he did that. He also threw her pants over top of a lampshade. One of the strangest parts was she said he bragged about his penis and that it was about eight inches long, which we know wasn't true, and I think he was maybe just trying to convince himself. Seems more of a, you know, confidence booster for him than it would, you know, be about her. He would then rape her several times, taking breaks to rummage through the home. At about 11.40 p.m., which is about an hour since the, uh, the attack began, the friend that she was supposed to have a sleepover with came by to check on her since she had called a few times and let it ring for a while, but nobody had actually answered. She rang the doorbell and knocked repeatedly on the door. Frightened, D'Angelo ran out the back, and the victim then heard a loud noise from the roof, which would be discovered to be a jar of Vaseline when the sheriff's office did arrive. The axe was left behind on the fence, and they also found a can of Dr. Pepper that he drank between the assaults in the backyard. D'Angelo took the victim's driver's license, two rings, and her sister's school ID with him. When police spoke to the victim, she gave a very similar description to all the other rapes and attacks, including the smaller penis size, despite what he had said. And she had also received the hang-up phone calls for about six months prior. Bloodhounds were brought in for this case as well, but led them to an area where a car was parking for about the last month, but no driver had actually been seen. The axe that he used would be discovered to belong to their home, which, as we progress, will become a part of his future MO, where he kind of has the uh, tools from convenience of being in the home. That would be something that he will continue on to do. It would just be the first time that that would appear. So the year's next attack is on April 2nd, 1977, and this attack is the sixth attack from him in 77, and we're only about three months in, so just keep that in mind. That is about two a month, essentially, at this point. So he's really, really uh, ramping up even further than he was in 1976. So this attack would come shortly after news reports began telling Sacramento residents that he was only targeting women who were home alone. And so far, he had not attacked any houses that had a man present. So D'Angelo, who from all evidence clearly kept up on the news about himself, would target his first home with an entire family at home. The victim, her two children, and her boyfriend had just arrived home from a late night outing to the drive-in. When they got in, the children, who were seven and an eight-year-old, were a boy and a girl, were put to sleep in their beds, and after that, they noted that it was about 1.30 a.m. when they climbed into bed themselves. An hour later, at about 2.30 a.m., the victim was awoken by a flashlight being beamed into her face. And when her eyes cleared, she saw a masked man who growled to her not to make a sound, saying, Do you see this gun? She agreed, saying, Yes. He ordered her to wake up her boyfriend, and she nudged him, telling him that there's someone in the room. He ordered them on their stomachs, saying, Stop, don't move, lay on your stomachs. I have a 45 with 14 shots and two clips. I want your money. Exactly where is your wallet? If you don't tell me the truth, I'll kill you. Don't make any sudden moves. Lay still or I'll kill you like I did those people in Bakersfield. Trying to give them misinformation, clearly, as he always did. 
After they were on their stomachs, he ordered the woman to tie up her boyfriend. When she asked him with what, he hovered his flashlight down towards the foot of the bed and there laid a pair of white shoelaces, already neatly laid out. As she tied, he rummaged through the boyfriend's pants and set himself up another red herring, saying, After I take the money, I'm going down to my camp on the American River. He checked her bindings on her wrists and tied them tighter, then tied the boyfriend's ankles together. He then, through clenched teeth, proclaimed that he was going to take her out into the hallway and tie her up so that they couldn't untie each other. He brought her into the family room and tied her up, blindfolded her, and then ransacked the kitchen. He placed a cup and saucer onto the small of her back and ordered her not to move or he would kill her. Then he went into the master bedroom and did the same thing to her boyfriend. He went through the house, the garage as well, rummaging as he went. When he came back to her, he removed the cup and saucer and sexually assaulted her. Before he raped her, he actually demanded to know if her and her boyfriend had had sex that night. She responded no, that they didn't. He put on high heel shoes on her feet before he raped her. When he finished, it was quiet for a bit before it became apparent that he was in the kitchen. He was in there making himself food, and then she could hear him eat. After he was finished with his meal, he raped her again, and then again for a third time. When he finally left, her boyfriend was able to get up and call for help. When police arrived, they found that their next-door neighbors were robbed two months before, and three months before the attack, a neighbor saw a man prowling in his backyard and chased him through several yards before losing him. Both the neighbor and the victim gave similar descriptions. The crime scene was described as cold and was found that the heater was actually unplugged and that the TV cord had been cut. He chewed gum and they found his chewed up pieces left behind. He used two of the spoons in their home. Each showed a, a blood type which matched the other uh, crime scenes. Oddly out of character though, the ear referred to the man as her husband rather than her boyfriend which showed that he was unfamiliar with the family, which was not typical for his cases. The victims did have a dog, which was normally quite a vocal dog, but police later theorized that he formed a relationship with the dog by feeding it before the attack. And you'll see he's known as well for the dogs being um, oddly quiet. Again, it could be what the police theorized, that he was feeding them or forming some sort of relationship with them while he entered their home or stalked the house before he actually attacked them. So in a sense, the dogs knew who he was. April 15th, he would strike again. This incident being almost parallel to the last one, a male and female victim awoken in their sleep by a flashlight. He told her to tie up her husband with shoelaces neatly placed on the foot of the bed. He then fixed the bindings to his liking. He then tied up the woman and rummaged through their home. So this time he came back to get the victim and then returned her to the bedroom before he came back to get her once more. And then he would return with the woman in tow. So they walked together back into the bedroom where the man was still bound on the bed and placed dishes onto his back. And that's when he warned him that if the dishes moved or rattled at all, that he would kill her. Then he took the woman and brought her out to the family room and ordered her on the floor where he began sexually assaulting her and then raping her while holding a cocked gun to her head. Terrifying. The boyfriend's hands became so numb that he tried to move them into a more comfortable position. This caused the plates to fall off and they crashed. The intruder quietly returned to the room and the boyfriend didn't know he was there until the barrel of the gun actually touched his head. The clenched growl whispered, do that again and I'll kill you, and put dishes back onto his back. The ear would threaten, rape, and rummage, as he would typically do, but he would also take the woman's driver's license and pictures and set them out. Twenty minutes would go by, and the boyfriend accidentally knocked the plates over once more. D'Angelo would return and threaten him again, this time throwing a blanket over his head. After a while, it was silent, and the girl called out for her boyfriend, and she was able to get up and get a knife to help him remove his bindings. As they went to a neighbor's house and called the police department, sheriffs would discover that the phone lines had been cut, and he took with him a half a gram of coke and some marijuana, which the victims admitted to having. Again, he would refer to the man as the victim's husband rather than boyfriend, so clearly he had not stalked them in any significant manner. 
During this investigation, they found that the house across from them was currently sitting empty, and that when they investigated, they found evidence that the ear had stalked them from there. This would be another MO adapted by the ear. This particular case also showed that he didn't fully come prepared, and he had actually only brought one set of bindings, having to use an impromptu cord. So it would seem that, at least in part, it was not fully planned, and it may not have been as premeditated as the others. Could it be that he was just becoming bolder, not feeling as if he needed to be as prepared beforehand? I mean, it's possible too, right? Also, it would explain why the woman had to go with him to put the dishes on the man's back as he did not have bindings to tie her up and leave her there. He had to actually bring her back and forth with him. The following month, on May 3rd, the ear would strike again, this time hitting a two-story townhome, which was completely different than all his previous attacks. The victim was exercising in the upper part of the home when she heard a loud noise from the backyard around midnight. She likened it to the sound of her two young boys who would occasionally jump over the fence. Stunned to hear it, she looked outside into the backyard from the window, but she saw nothing, so she continued on with her night and eventually went to bed downstairs with her husband. At about 2 a.m., she was awoken by a masked man with a flashlight. He did all his usual threatening them, telling them that he only wanted money. He had the woman tie up her husband and even used his diversion tactic, telling the couple he needed money for cocaine and even faking a shiver as if he was like going through withdrawals. He told them that he had a camp near the river as well. Basically, he really shot his best shot at misleading them and, and turned the police because obviously they're going to relay that information. He would rape the wife after separating her from her husband after he finished, he placed glass decorations onto her back, and if they fell or moved, he told her that he would come back and kill her. He went into the bedroom to begin looting around and asked the husband if he had been a serviceman. When he replied yes, the Air Force, D'Angelo once again tried to deflect from his true identity, saying, I got thrown out. He would go about his ransacking and returning to threaten his victims with the husband noting the sounds of eating as he did and the wife remembering the intruder telling her that he was going to go eat. D'Angelo again laid another red herring out by sounding nervous and breathing heavily. After D'Angelo left, the husband shouted for help. Eventually, a neighbor actually heard his cries for help and called the police. When interviewed, the couple told the police that they were also receiving those hang-up phone calls for about a week before this attack. Just two days later, two, that's it, just two, 48 hours essentially between this attack and the next one, and that would be on the 5th, a woman arrived at about 10.30 p.m. to her male friend's home to go over some business with him, bringing her two dogs as well. She began immediately to feel uncomfortable that night, noting that her dogs barked at the shadows in the backyard when they were let out and had a feeling as if they were also being watched. They carried on and went over their business and enjoyed some television together, and she decided to head out about 12.15 a.m. Being a gentleman, the homeowner walked her out to her car to see her off, and as soon as they got outside, the dogs rushed ahead and began barking again. Then a man in a mask appeared. With a gun in his hand, he ordered them to get back into the house, making the woman tie up her male friend and then to bring the dogs into a separate be bedroom and shut that door. After she did that, he tied her up and placed dishes onto both of their backs and threatened them some more and used the usual, if the dishes moved, he would kill them kind of thing. He would spout off about the usual, about wanting money, and went about looting to come back and blindfold the victim and cut off her bra. During the attack, he raped her three times and also sexually assaulted her, all while rummaging through the man's belongings. He tried again to divert attention from himself, telling her three times that she'd better swear to God she didn't see a van down the street, even going as far to make her, like, repeat it back to him. Like, telling her she had to say it back to him. I didn't see the van down the street. I didn't see the van. It's crazy. More than likely, it was just a way to assert more control. He then went to the kitchen, rummaged around, eating and drinking. Eventually, it was quiet, and the two friends were able to contact the sheriff's department. The case was quickly linked to the ear as the analysis of the semen came back as a non-secretor. And all his telltale signs were there, including cutting the phone lines. The description that the two gave matched the ear as well, with the woman noting that he had an oddly thin penis. 
and he would act frustrated and had a hard time staying aroused. It was clear this attack was just another opportunistic one, but since he had brought all his own bindings with him, he would probably bring his tools with him to the stockings. So maybe they weren't intended, but you never know. He liked to keep his stuff with him just in case. The next victim would have an encounter that mimicked all the rest, and this was about halfway through uh, May of 77 on the 14th, with the terror beginning at around 4.30 a.m. So if you remember, our last one was on the 5th, and this is on the 14th, so not too long in between. All the typical behaviors of the ear would occur. The mask, albeit nylon this time, the flashlight, the gun, the threats, the bindings, having the wife tie up the husband and then tied her up. He'd used a clenched growl to ask where the money was. He would rummage around, even going outside, to return with a cup and a saucer to place onto the husband's back, claiming that he couldn't find the wife's purse. After being led out to the family room under the guise of finding this purse, he ordered her to lay down and she would hear the sound of cans being opened, assuming it was beer from the refrigerator. After returning to threaten her husband, he went into the bathroom and grabbed a towel. Standing over the woman, lying on the family room floor, he tore it in half, placing one piece over top of the TV, which was on, but with the volume turned all the way down, so it was essentially muted. And then he used the other piece to blindfold her. He then proceeded to rape her and sexually assault her. She began to cry after he told her that she was beautiful and that he was going to take her in a van, asking her, how would you like to be in the river? After he finished, she turned her over and placed a cup and saucer on her back. As he did, he noticed her wedding rings, and even though she pleaded with him not to take them, he callously told her to shut up and rip them off her fingers while holding the muzzle of the gun to her head. It's all very sad. She would later hear him grab a bag and exited out of the back door. Finally, the sounds of him jumping over the fence as well. All of the calling cards were there when the officers made it on scene around 6 a.m., including that he must have worn gloves because, like all the others, there were no fingerprints found. Interestingly, the police found out that the couple had only lived in this house for about three months, with the previous owners experiencing a number of hang-up calls. As with some of the other incidents, their dog didn't appear to be alarmed by the ear's presence in their home. Three days later, a couple from the Carmichael area would be awoken at about 1.30 in the morning by a man standing in the doorway of the patio door, which was off of their bedroom. The couple's two sons and their elderly Italian father, who was visiting, slept soundly through the whole events. Since there was heavy coverage of the ear at this point, the male homeowner immediately knew that this must be him. And unsure of how to handle the situation, he tried to fake sleeping. That didn't work, and D'Angelo grew mad and banged the butt of the gun off the doorway, shouting, Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! As he was threatening the couple, he faked a stutter that he had used before. He ordered the wife once again to tie up the husband before tying her up himself. After both their hands and feet were tied, he went back outside to set something down into what sounded like a, a toolbox, essentially. He came back and placed a coin box or something similar onto the husband's back and threatened him, and looted through the bedroom. He would use his usual excuse to separate the victims by telling the wife that he could not find her purse and demanded that she accompany him out there to get it. And then he would tell the husband if he heard any movement that he would kill the wife and then him. As the wife and D'Angelo went out to the living room, she noticed an Afghan over the lamp just draped over there, creating like a, a mood lighting essentially. He had her lay down, blindfolded her, and tied her back up. He went back in to see the husband and placed a plate and saucer onto his back. And I'm not sure if he removed the coin box or kept it there as well. It didn't quite say. But again, he would threaten, if he heard them rattle, that he would kill everyone in the home. He went out and would rummage through the fridge and help himself to their food. After that, he went on to sexually assault the wife, rape her, and used her name as he did so. When he finished, he told her that he was going out back to eat and drink beer and placed dishes onto her back and tied her back up tightly at that. That's when he leaned down and threw clenched teeth in a tone that she said sounded quite excited. He proclaimed, those fuckers, those fuckers, those pigs, I've never killed before, but I'm going to now. Listen, do you hear me? 
I want you to tell those fuckers, those pigs, I'm going to go home to my apartment. I have bunches of televisions. I'm going to listen to the radio and watch television. If I hear about this, I'm going to go out tomorrow night and kill two people. People are going to die. He feigned a stutter as he told her this. I'm not going to try and do that again. He then went to the bedroom, and after rummaging around a while, he told the husband pretty much the exact opposite uh, of the red herring that he told the wife. He said, You tell those fucking pigs that I could have killed two people tonight. If I don't see this all over the papers and televisions, I'll kill two people tomorrow night. So he told the wife if he did hear it, he would kill two people. He told the husband if he didn't hear it, he would kill two people. So just I essentially trying to mess with them. So he responded that he would tell them tomorrow, and that's when Joe D'Angelo replied back, Okay, tell them I'm going to kill those fuckers. After a while, the house was quiet. The husband began to call out for his father in Italian. His father, stirred by the yelling, came downstairs and was able to cut them loose. The sheriff's office was contacted and all the trademarks of the ear were present. Much like all the other cases, the family dog did not seem to care about the masked man. And when asked, the couple would tell them that the dog was known to aggressively bark at strangers. Police began to canvass the neighborhood after the incident, and the neighbor described that there were noises being made more often in his backyard, a pried-off screen as well, and that a dog was barking more frequently at night. They also heard noises in their backyard the night of the attack, indicating that the ear was stalking the neighborhood. At this point, a full-blown panic set in within the Sacramento community. The attacks were occurring back-to-back, -back, and the police would still be investigating some incidents, and another attack would happen before they could finish. The pace was unprecedented. The next day, on May 18th, the Sacramento Bee would report on the crime that took place the night before, and the Sheriff's Department spokesman would say, although the rapist has caused no serious physical injuries, they fear he may harm someone soon. The rapist told his victims to tell the pigs that he would kill two people if the rape received bad press coverage. Anybody who enters a home where people are sleeping with a gun and a knife is a potential killer, which is very, very true. Now, at this point in the 70s, it's a very different time. A psychological profile of the ear stated that he suffered from homosexual panic, which back then meant that they weren't openly gay, but suffered from unconscious fears of being gay which clearly has not aged well, but they thought this fear stemmed from his small stature in the pants. The 70s definitely had its faults, for sure. The panic of a rapist on a rampage who is now threatening to kill people alarmed the public and sparked massive sales in guns, with approximately uh, 2,600 guns being sold. And this caused dealers to actually run out of stock. Locksmiths were also working endless hours, especially in the wake of all the sold-out guns, which was all over the county. They were just putting in a lot of overtime. One woman cited during this time actually took two naps during the day so that she could stay awake all night waiting for the ear, or any suspicious noises, not trusting the fact that both her husband and son slept with guns because she knew that this was not a deterrent for the rapist. There were many town hall meetings called over the past few months, usually held at local schools where the sheriffs would take questions from the public to help disseminate information and likely, you know, to uh, exclude any misinformation and rumors. At one meeting earlier, a local sheriff recalled that a man actually couldn't believe that the ear attacks were even real because how could any husband let this happen? Later, the same man was the victim of the ear as well, and it chilled her to the bone because the East Area Rapist was likely in attendance at the meeting, taking pleasure from the panic that he caused. So, May 19th. The following day after the Sacramento Bee reported on what the ear had told his lack. <clears throat> so, May 19th. The following day after the Sacramento Bee reported on what the ear had told his last victims, the Bee increased the reward for the capture and conviction of the rapist, which was now posted at about $15,000, which is an incredible amount of money for 1977, so it really just shows how desperate the community was. This same day, an ad was placed in the newspaper, which said that the owners of a citizen band radio tried to help catch the ear together, essentially. The next day, the Sacramento Union reported on that specific ad, saying about 300 people with citizen band radio say that they will start a prowling in the streets tonight to look for the ear. 
Both police and the sheriff's department wished that they would stay at home. A new group, the East Area Rapist Surveillance Patrols, announced Thursday its intention to help. Law enforcement regulars feel that they will only be in the way. Along with the newspaper reports, recently a composite sketch was released publicly for the first time. This sketch was obtained under hypnosis from his 15th victim, and although there were bits and pieces that the victim remembered, the sketch itself was considered an artist's interpretation. This composite would run with every news article, but the sheriff's department lacked faith in its true value and credibility. And if you follow me on Instagram, you can actually see that specific uh, composite sketch in a news article that I had posted uh, from this time period last week when I posted on Instagram for episode two. As we were getting into 1977, I figured it would be interesting for people to see, but that is um, the sketch that was released at the time. So not long after this, a dentist named Dr. J.W. Gilmartin in Southern Sacramento matched the reward amount, making the total now $30,000. I don't even know how much that would be in the 70s, but that's, that's a lot. So just to lay out a picture for you, there's now patrolling vigilantes, the probably inaccurate sketch, gun sales are extremely high, and a reward is extremely high as well and it made it a very touch-and-go situation. People were unsure of what they were seeing. Were the people sitting in parked cars the ear, police, or a vigilante? Things got a bit out of control, to say the least, because you just don't know who's who, and it's, and it's getting really confusing. Sheriffs, despite some of the notions of the angry citizens, were busy putting in every effort to try and catch the monster, and would literally hide in trees in neighborhoods that were hot with ear activity, sitting for hours, wedged up there with tiny binoculars. They also rented out a home and posed as a couple, waiting each night for a masked man to come. By now, there wasn't much left of the month of May, and at this point, the attacks had to begin about a year earlier. And since then, he has now threatened to kill two people on his next attack. Fear was heightened, and everyone was on alert. May 28, 1977, he attacked victim 22. The woman did her laundry in the late evening and had noticed that the side door of the garage was open, which was where her laundry machines were located, but assuming that the wind had blown it open, she shut and locked it. When she finished, she headed off to bed at about 11.30 at night. The victim's husband had gotten home at around midnight from his job, staying up to watch some TV and unwind before heading to bed at about 2 a.m. A half hour after falling asleep, the man heard a jiggling noise and turned over in bed faced the patio door, which was right off their bedroom, when he saw a man entering through with a flashlight and gun. All went as usual with the ear, this time using glass bottles on the husband's back before returning with dishes to put on his back. He ran through the typical barrage of threats. He took the wife out to the living room, where he had placed torn pieces of towel, using one of the strips to blindfold her. He went on to rape and sodomize her as well. When he finished, he told her the same thing as the last couple, saying, I have something for you to tell the fucking pigs. They got it mixed up last time. I said I would kill two people. I'm not going to kill you. If this was on TV or in the paper tomorrow, I'll kill two people. He then faked a stutter, and he said, Are you listening? Do you hear me? And again, that was with the stutter. He continued, I have TVs in my apartment, and I'll be watching them. If this is on the news, I'll kill two people. He faked a sob, telling her it scared his mommy when it was on the news, repeating it twice, sounding extra broken up while saying the word mommy. He then left through the patio door, which was in the bedroom, and the husband waited for a few moments before springing up, knocking the phone off the receiver and dialing the operator with his hands tied behind his back. When the police arrived, all the evidence was the same, the bindings, the towels, the homestyle, their descriptions, and they also found a bottle of wine and some sausages out back on the patio. The husband was able to identify the gun when it came through the door because he had previously been a Marine Reserve, telling police it was a military blue steel 45 automatic. The phone lines were not cut in this case, though, nor did he pull any cords from the wall, which seemed risky considering the fact that the other people were in the home. This attack was in a different area than any other attacks, but interestingly, it was actually located quite closely to the dentist who matched the capture reward for the ear, Dr. J.W. Gilmartin's office, so he may have been trying to send a message. And just as fast as the ear appeared, 
he vanished. There were no attacks for a bit over three months, and that's when he sprang up again. On September 6th, 1977, at three in the morning, a husband and wife awoke into a masked man with a flashlight coming in through their patio door in their master bedroom while their two young children were asleep in their bedrooms. He would walk through the same old tactics as before, nothing had changed, ordering the wife to tie up the husband, telling them that he wants their money and food, threatening them, and even saying that he would chop up the kids. After the couple was bound, he left the room. They could hear him closing drapes. He brought the wife out to the living room while holding a knife to her throat and came back to place dishes on the husband's back, delivering the same threat that he would kill everybody if he heard the plates rattle. After he went back into the living room, he draped a blanket over a lamp and raped the woman twice. She even believed that he brought with him a prosthetic penis, using it on her several times, so uh, a dildo, if you don't know what that is. He also laid another red herring, saying that he only lived a few blocks away in an apartment. At some point during the rapes, the six-year-old daughter stirred, walked out into the hall, and saw the masked man standing there and he told her he was playing tricks on her mother and to go back to bed. After he left, the couple both heard the sound of a Volkswagen engine start up. The police, upon arrival at 4 a.m., discovered a can of Pepsi on the patio and a jar of peanut butter out on the kitchen counter. When they canvassed the neighborhood, they learned that many people in the area were receiving hang-up phone calls and that there were reports of dogs barking more than usual and strange cars that were also seen. Neighbors confirmed what the couple had heard, and their daughter as well, that a Volkswagen motor had started up and then left the area. They did find a shoe print at the crime scene and pry marks on the screen door to the patio. The morning after, the couple had found a knife that did not belong to them, and police were able to collect that as evidence as well. All descriptions matched, including a small member of the rapist, which was how partly the woman was able to determine that a fake one was used on her as well. During the attack, he asked a couple who else was in the house, which to police seemed like he was not familiar with the couple as he normally would have been previously. So there was theories that he had not stalked them for long, so he hadn't been out stalking probably all summer. Police wondered where he was all summer and what was preventing him from continuing the attacks. About a month later, he would strike again at around 2 a.m. on October 1st with another couple that were awoken by a masked man with a flashlight. The couple was 21-year-old Vic Hayes and Rhonda Ortiz. She was 17 years old at the time. Again, he'd walked through all his typical steps, the order of the bindings, while threatening as well, placing dishes on the boyfriend's back and leading the woman out to the living room before raping her. He was eventually scared off after being in their home for about a half hour by some of Vic's friends who'd actually knocked on the door. The dog phenomenon would happen in this case once more, with the dog not barking, and the ear would pick up the dog and move him into another room. It was during the investigation that some unnerving facts would come out. The man and the intruder had a bit of a standoff mentally before tying the couple up. A shotgun was leaning against the bedroom wall, and the ear had noticed, shining the flashlight toward it while making eye contact with Vic. Later, police uncovered that the shotgun was actually unloaded, and the shells were lined up in a neat little row underneath the bed, leading them to believe it happened sometime before the attack, with the most probable time being when the boyfriend was driving his girlfriend home after getting into a loud and angry argument, but eventually they made up and drove back to the boyfriend's apartment in the duplex. It would seem as if he was intentionally baiting the boyfriend to go for the shotgun, knowing that it was empty. And if you haven't listened to the testimony that Vic Hayes gives at the uh, trial for Joseph James D'Angelo, I would suggest that you do that, because it was... It was phenomenal. Uh, Vic seems very haunted to this day by what happened to him and he gets emotional which you know unfortunately we don't see a lot in men in all around i mean he's he seemed terrorized in a sense by the by this he made some accusations as well about uh, perhaps meeting uh, joe d'angelo prior to this which i mean we, it could have happened it could have happened we never know but um, at the same time it, it wouldn't be the first time that people's um uh, minds play tricks on them. You see that all the time with the composite sketches and things like that being made. So uh, it could be he's just trying to link it mentally because it was such a terrible, terrible thing that happened to him. But I mean, we know Joe D'Angelo and we know he stalks his victims, so it's very possible that they had previously met. So 20 days after the last attack, the ear would hit again, 
The victim sensed a presence in her bedroom and awoken, and her fears were correct. Standing in the doorway was the outline of a man. When she turned over to look, the intruder took his flashlight and shined it directly into her eyes. She could make out through her squinted eyes that in his opposite hand, he was holding a gun. Terrified, she elbowed her husband, waking him up. The figure, through a clenched, angry growl, barked out his typical threat, saying, I have a 357 Magnum. If you don't do as I say, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Huh. With that, he tossed those shoelaces onto the bed. Still barking his orders with a low whisper, he told the wife to tie up her husband and to do it right, to tie his hands behind his back tightly, telling her once more that if she didn't, he would blow her head off. Once she had completed his command, he went over to tighten the laces further, and then he tied her up once he was happy with the restraints. He went through his typical rummaging through the house, leaving the couple in the bedroom. Once he returned, it was noticed that he came back with dishes, placing them onto the husband's back. As soon as this happened, she knew terrifyingly that this was the East Area Rapist in their home. He picked her up and let her out of the room, and just as a mom does, she felt relief. She felt relief because it would be her that was raped and not her 13-year-old daughter who was asleep in the other room. He would end up raping her twice, stuttering during the second attack, saying, Tell the pigs I'll be back on New Year's Eve. Again, that was he stuttered that whole sentence. When he finished, he sobbed in the corner of the room before leaving. Once investigated, it was determined that the daughter had come home from school one day to find the door to the garage into the house ajar, which was determined to be how the ear entered during this attack. With that, they determined that they were also targeted like most of his victims. In another bold move, just about a week or eight days later, he raped his next victim. At around 1.45 a.m., a couple was asleep in their bedroom. The husband was suddenly awoken by something tapping directly on his foot. As soon as he opened his eyes, a bright light from a flashlight beamed brightly. With that, a voice growled out, Don't move or I'll blow your fucking brains out. I know you got a gun in the drawer in here somewhere, and if you move, I'll blow your fucking brains out. I know you got a gun in here somewhere. Scared, the husband informed him that there is a gun, and it's in the nightstand drawer. The wife had woken up during the intruder's rant and was told to tie up her husband. He tossed shoelaces at her. She attempted to tie him up, but mistakenly had tied just one wrist, and this made Joseph D'Angelo very mad. He berated her and threatened her, and he tossed another shoelace at her to retie him. He did his usual rummaging and ransacking before coming back into the room. At this point, he burst into a rage, accusing the woman of trying to untie her husband. He cut her ankles and ordered her to get up. He pushed her with his gun down the hallway. When they got to the living room, she noticed that he'd already cut up towels into strips, and they were laid neatly onto the floor. He ordered her to lie down on her stomach on the floor and used a towel strip to blind her. He tossed out another red herring and told her that he only needed money for his van. When she informed him that she didn't have any money, but she could write him a check, he clearly did not like that offer and told her to shut your fucking mouth and left the room. It wasn't long before he returned and began assaulting her while still tied up. She could taste that he had put lotion on himself before beginning the assault. After he raped her, he then stood up and started sobbing and hyperventilating, repeating over and over again, I'm sorry, mom. Mommy, please help. I don't want to do this, mommy. He left for a bit before returning to rape her once more and repeating his sobbing cries for his mommy. When he finished, she tied her feet back up and watched some TV. When he finished, he pried off her wedding rings and placed a saucer and cup on the victim's back before leaving into the dark. When investigators arrived, they were disturbed by a series of previous events to the attack. The couple informed them that they had been out for the evening but had returned around 10 p.m. While they were out, Joe D'Angelo had entered their home through a window in a guest bedroom. He did this by breaking the pane and prying off the screen. He went into the master bedroom after getting in and unlocked the sliding glass patio door, found the revolver in the bedside table, and unloaded it. He exited out the patio door he unlocked and replaced the screen on the window he entered through. The bullets from the gun that he unloaded were later found outside of a home that belonged to a state patrol officer. There were bloodhounds brought in to track the ear's escape. The dog was able to track him to a corner nearby where a dump truck is typically parked. They were able to find a witness from her business across the street, and from that corner she saw a man at about 6.30 a.m. rise up from inside of the dump truck parked there with his bike in his hands. He matched the descriptions of clothing and was also wearing a mask. He got on his bike and rode off. 
This particular attack also was discovered to have the signature hang-up phone calls for about a week before the attack happened. November 10th, 1977, at 3.30am, D'Angelo strikes again. This time his victims were a mother and daughter pair. The daughter had actually been glued to any news reported about the East Area Rapist for a while before this night's attack, and truly wondered what made this man tick and soaked up any information she could about his crimes, which I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast can relate to. The mother was the first to be awoken. She had sprung up out of bed after hearing her patio door bang shut. The mother was 56 years old at the time, and her daughter was just 13. As the intruder entered the home, he shot a beam of light from a flashlight directly into her eyes. As he did this, she demanded to know what he wanted. Doing his best clench growl, he responded that he didn't want to hurt her and to lie back down, that he just wanted her money. He ordered her to lie on her stomach and tied her up, and like the badass this woman truly was, she complained to him that her hands were tied too tightly. He went on to threaten her and demand to know who was in the house. She told him that it was just her and her daughter. He then slinked away to tie up the daughter. He tried to wake up the 13-year-old Margaret, and when she realized that she was being shaken awake by a masked man, she demanded for him to leave her alone. Telling police she initially thought it was a prank being played on her due to her interest in the East Area Rapist reported crimes. He replied to her that it wasn't a joke and to get on her stomach. She argued, quipping back, no. Angered, Joe replied, do what I say or I'm going to stick you with a knife. I'll slit your throat and watch you bleed to death. He pressed the knife against her neck and just behind the ear, saying, do you want me to cut your ear off? With that, she rolled over and casually replied, I don't care. These two women are just amazing and I really can't stress that enough. D'Angelo demanded money from her, to which she replied, I don't have any. He would eventually get her tied up as well and left. She heard him head into the bathroom. She began to loosen the ties on her ankle, but heard him coming back. He warned her not to move again, and that if she did, he would kill her mother. It was at this point Margaret realized that she was his intended victim when she heard him coming with dishes, and he walked past her room and into the mother's room. This is when she knew he was the East Area Rapist and what was likely to happen. As he was placing dishes onto her mother and threatening her with any movement of them, he did his usual best at misleading the investigation by telling the mother that he needs things for his apartments. He would then head in to assault the daughter, bringing with him strips of towels. He used them to blindfold and gag her. During the whole assault, she did continue her resisting, disobeying much of his commands, and saying that she did not want to. When investigated, the victim and her mother insisted that there had been no rape. Although they felt certain that this was not the case, and that the 13-year-old victim, in fact, had been raped. Really, this is just so sad, because you have to remember this is 1970s, and there was a huge stigma still, and she was ostracized and almost blamed, and so it's fairly understandable why they would not want to report it, but these women were so strong, and it's still so sickening that he just continued to commit them and not be caught. It is confirmed now by Margaret that on that night she was raped by the ear, just as investigators had thought, she was later called one of the strongest young victims that they had ever encountered by one of the investigators. About a month later, on December 2nd, 1977, he attempted again to rape another victim, this time ending in failure. The victim was in bed with her six-year-old daughter. Her husband had left for the evening around 11 p.m. to gamble with some friends. The woman had heard a noise at about 11.30, thinking that it was her cat. She stayed in bed, which I'm sure we can all relate to because if you have a cat, you just know. <laughs> But soon she was stirred by a man shining a flashlight into her eyes. He ordered her up with the threat of killing her little boy, clearly not knowing that, in fact, that she had a little girl. After she did get up, she noticed that he was carrying shoelaces, but oddly had no gun or knife. He ordered her down the hall and onto her knees in the living room. She was then bound and he took off her underwear. Then he stood over her for some time without saying a word. He then tied her ankles very tightly. As he did this, she was sobbing. He told her if she didn't stop crying, he would have to gag her. But wittingly, she responded that she was unable to tell her daughter to go back to bed if she got up, if she would be gagged. The victim noted that he seemed distracted, likely by the children who were loudly playing outside in the streets up front. She noticed that he went to the window in the living room, peering out of the drapes over and over, and even muttered, You think you're smarter, but I'm smarter than you, on one of the instances. He would come back from the window and stand over her multiple times and wandered through the house, but he never actually assaulted her at any point. Once she heard him leave, she heard a van start up and got up and made her way to the phone and knocked it off its cradle and was able to dial her neighbor's number. 
The neighbor then contacted the police department and came over to help her, cutting the shoelaces that tightly bound her wrists and ankles. The police would soon arrive and immediately began questioning the victim upon their arrival. The only door that was unlocked was the patio door. She was certain, though, that it had been locked before heading to bed. She did admit that there was a spare key to the front door that was placed under the mat that had disappeared only a couple weeks prior. Along with this, they asked about the hang-up calls, and the victim told investigators that she had, in fact, been receiving such calls every day for the past three weeks at about 2 p.m. or after. Although she initially thought that the calls were a girl who was calling for her young son, you know, as girls do, they would call and hope that they answer, essentially, she admitted that her son had actually answered two of these phone calls but was still hung up on, so obviously that couldn't have been the case. The investigators also discovered that there was a burglary at the home on October 27th, but oddly, only two pictures from a photo album had been taken, and the intruder also turned off their thermostat, which is kind of a dick move. Neighbors in the area also reported having electricity cut off recently, and hang-up calls, and one threatening phone call as well, where the caller whispered, you're next. Unfortunately, when questioned, the children who were playing out front neither heard nor saw anything unusual, which again... They're children, so I guess, what do you expect? <laughs> They're probably too into whatever game they were playing. But anyways, I think that's where we're going to stop for today. That's quite a lot, um, and we've got through all of 77, so now we're going to get into uh, 78 on uh, part 4. That should be the last bit of the ear cases, because there, there's just too many. I'm sorry. It, I'm, I'm doing my best to compress the information, but as I said, it's I, I want to make sure that a lot of information is given as much as needed. But, you know, keep it brief as well. But yeah, so that's it for part three. Yeah, I'm hoping that I can get this out uh, sooner than later. I'm recording later than I usually do into the week. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to get this out on Tuesday. So, you know, I'm, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, yay. If not, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I hope that uh, I can do that for you guys. Uh, if you want to follow me on any social media, you can. As I said, I do post... Um, Especially on Instagram. Instagram, I do post pictures to go along with the case. Every uh, every Tuesday when it gets posted, I put up pictures to go along with it. So you can have a look as well. And my Instagram is Crime and Cynicism. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am Crime and Cynicism Pod. And I do post there. Obviously, you're only allowed one picture on Twitter. So it's not as, as thorough. But I do post there as well. I also share updates to different things as well and retweets of, of different crimes and things like that. So check that out too. I'm also on TikTok and that is crime and cynicism as well. And I post a little video to go with each case as well. So every part of the uh, Golden State Killer case also gets a little video too. Uh, nothing, nothing major, but it's cute. And I do some fun videos as well. And then uh, I do have a Patreon now. And you can check me out on there. It's Crime and Cynicism. And I do have one tier. I'm going to post probably today. Well, you, since you're listening to this, it's not going to be this day, but it'll be last week for you guys. But uh, pictures of the stickers that you will be included into the, the welcome package. As I said, I hand draw them and I design them myself. And they're all crime related. And those will all go into a welcome package, which will get sent to you. You get a lot of different privileges as well. So check us out on there. It's pretty cool and be a part of the community as well. And I just do this for fun, but I would love to uh, to welcome you all. All right. So, yeah, I hope you guys keep it cynical. I hope you guys keep it real. All right. See you next week. Bye.